John 13.35, familiar passage of the scriptures, 13.35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you, if you love one another. What could be easier? <laughs> it sounds so simple, right? Jesus, is that all that you really expect of us? Sounds so simple. Well, I mean, one of the platitudes of the Christian life. We're to love our fellow Christians. But in the statement, there are a few assumptions that he's making. The first, number one, is <clears throat> that you're always to love them. Always, at all times, even when they hurt you, even when they betray you or tremendously disappoint you. And the second is that you're to love all of them, always and all of them, even uh, the cold, distant, critical, demanding, narcissistic ones of them. When we get to the love one another, at first glance or first hearing, it sounds like something that any old person could do, but once you drill down a little bit, you realize it is the lifelong struggle of the Christian life to figure out how do we keep on <laughs> loving one another. As we read past the passage here that Peter writes, I just want you to listen as we go through for clues on how we might fulfill this command of Jesus to love one another. Verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers and sisters, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again. Born again The work of being born again is the work of the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit, uh, not of of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. Through the living and enduring word of God. By the Spirit, through the word. Those are the right prepositions. For, uh, verse 24, as, as Isaiah says, All men are like grass, and all their glory is like The flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the the good news. This word was the good news that was preached to you. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, all hypocrisy, envy, And slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. So that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Came across this book excerpt this week. Good quote in it. Sitting alone on a bluff overlooking a glassy mountain lake. Contemplating in silence as... The aspens turn to gold and red while pulling up my Patagonia fleece around my neck and anticipating the $4 latte my wife is picking up from the coffee shop just up the road. I tell you, this is my kind of church. (laughs) Grandpa and grandma have the kids, and now it's just me, nature, and Jesus. Here in my church, there are no messy relationships, No commitment, no social contracts to serve in the two-year-old room and change diapers of someone else's kid. Oh, no. I think I see a deer stirring below. 
man, I love this church. And he finishes it up by saying, go, Jesus. <laughs> and that is, that's American individualism, isn't it? I mean, and it's appealing on so many different levels. Sipping your latte on the couch, watching your favorite preacher and his uh, church internet stream, just sitting there in your pajamas. That's the kind of church that every one of us would love to attend. Only, it's not any church that Peter would recognize. In fact, I don't even know that, that this, what we're doing on Sunday mornings, is necessarily church. Church is more than just something you go to. According to Peter in verse 22 here, church is your family. He says, now that you've purified yourselves by, by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers and sisters. I don't know if you've ever, do you get creeped out if somebody after the service comes up to you and says, hey, sister, <laughs> or hey, brother, that depending on how they say it, it might be rather creepy. But, but that's, <clears throat> that's the truth. This is your family. When Peter says, Love your brothers and sisters. Of course he meant, look around at the the 30 or so people that are sitting in the room with you right now. The slave right here, the barbarian with the beard, as they were called Gentiles right there, and the Jewish guy from Crete. And this is your family. This is the family you were stuck with. If you don't like this family, it's tough luck because there aren't any other churches or any other options in town. I wonder if it actually isn't easier for them because they didn't have uh, the choices and the options that we do. Uh, they don't have cars where they can uh, you know, go here or go there. They didn't have the option of pulling back emotionally from people or physically from people who they didn't want to connect with. They were very accustomed to living lives that were closely interconnected, both, I think, emotionally and physically. You may not realize this, but... Ancient cities in, in the world, the ancient world, they were very compact. The, the typical ancient city was only five to ten acres in size. <clears throat> and yet they, they lived at 250 people per acre. Think about that. I mean, in, in Boise, how many people do you think live on an acre? <laughs> if you take, up the, take the entire city of Boise, I mean, just a, a handful. But they, they were accustomed to living close to one another. They were accustomed to having to stick with the process of being near to people, even people who you don't like. They stuck with the process of loving one another. Now, the biggest challenge for us when it comes to Jesus' command to love one another, it actually has nothing to do with proximity. It has to do with uh, the cultural mindset we have grown up with. Our problem is we have grown up with a transactional view of love. What do I mean by that? When we say, I love you, what we actually mean by that word is, I love you insofar as you're meeting, I'm, you're meeting my needs. I love you so long as I'm getting my needs met. In modern relationships, we are connected to other people so long as they are meeting a need of ours at an acceptable cost to us. I mean, there's some exceptions to this, but by and large, most of our so-called loving relationships are are a a commercialization, a commodification of the other person. It is a quid pro quo where I will love you insofar as 
I'm getting something in return, which when you talk about it that way, you see how individualized it is and how completely different than the ancient mindset was. Their mindset was, you remain faithful to your tribe, to your family, no matter what the cost. And our mindset is, you stay in a relationship as long as you're getting enough out of it. I know that a number of you have read Paul Miller's book, A Praying Life. Anybody? Nod your heads. One of my favorite books on prayer over the last 10 years. Well, in 2014, Paul Miller came out with another book that was aptly titled A Loving Life. While the book is not nearly as good as A Praying Life, I read it this week, there's still some gems to be found in it. And here's one. Paul Miller writes, To love anybody, to truly love anybody, your energy to love has to come from God and not the other person you are loving which is the exact opposite of a transactional view. In modern love, my love is dependent upon what you are going to provide me in return. Uh, My love is in some sense sourced out of your ability to reciprocate, which works relatively well when you're dealing with people who are healthy and appreciative and thankful and kind and generous. If If I know that you're that kind of person, then sure, I love you. In fact, you are an excellent candidate for my love. (laughs) I will get to know you, spend time with you, befriend you, and even maybe love you so long as you're reciprocating and not costing me too much. It's a a transaction. And and the way you know that you're falling into it is, is how many cold, distant, critical, demanding, and narcissistic people do you actually move up close to and have a deep relationship with. If, if that's you, then I will not give you the light of day. So to love anybody, to truly love anybody, your energy has to come from God and not the person you are loving. Have you ever been in a situation, I know you have, where you, you get to the end of your rope and you say, I, I can't do it. I can't love this person. I do not have inside of me the wisdom the strength, the power, the stamina, the patience to love this person. But I know that it's not an option to pull back and walk away. What I would suggest to you is that in those moments, you're actually for the very first time figuring out what it means to love. In the place of helplessness, where you have to depend utterly upon a strength that is not your own. You have to depend utterly on the power of the Holy Spirit. It is only, it's there, and not in the easy-to-love people, but there, the hard-to-love people, that we're actually discovering what it means to love others as, as Christ has loved us. Here's another way to think about it. So sometimes our friends will provide to us well-meaning advice, which is entirely unhelpful. And the advice comes to us in the following form. Uh, You should be doing blank. You're not doing blank, so do blank. (laughs) You you feel depressed. Well, you should be exercising, and you're not exercising, so go exercise. Uh, You feel feel bad about yourself. You should be eating less. You're eating a whole lot, so go eat less and diet. um, They never say it that bluntly, but if you boil it down, that's kind of what they're saying. And the, the assumption being that you can just accomplish that like through an, the, 
the fortitude of your own will. You can, you're not doing blank, I should do blank, bam. And maybe that's the case. Maybe on, on low-level sorts of things, you, you can do it. But I, here's a piece of advice your friends will never give you. They will never say, you're not running a four-minute mile. <laughs> you should be running a four-minute mile, so just go run a four-minute mile. Because, they, because that's impossible, isn't it? Like, I would have to have my skeleton replaced with some robotic exoskeleton. I would have to have somebody inject me with some kind of like superpower drug, and I still wouldn't be able to get to a four-minute mile. Well, brothers and sisters, when the Bible says, love one another as Christ has loved you, it is asking you for something so difficult, so far-reaching, you Cannot, it is not the first category of eat less and exercise more. It is something that is impossible. The kind of love God wants us to have from one another is so far beyond us. And when you realize that that's what he's calling you to, and when you realize that you're entirely incapable of it because it's not transactional, then you dig down deep into the power of the Holy Spirit, which Peter calls you the power of new life, new birth. And it's from... Romans 5.5, 5, or 5, is it 5.5? 5, 5, 5? Yeah, 5.5. 5. God sheds the love. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he's given us. And that, when you're digging into, that is the source. That is the power for us to love one another. Look with me in verse 2, because there's actually a second power for love, and it's found in this passage. Verse 2. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Simple image, right? Babies crave milk. You you take away the bottle or the sippy cup and they scream like mad. Babies have an irrational, unrelenting demand to be fed whenever they are hungry, isn't it? And Peter's saying, That's what's supposed to characterize us when it comes to God's word. He knows that that's what the word, that the word, the word is necessary. the, The word is necessary to fuel us. So going back to a life, a loving life by Paul Miller, he speaks about a situation where he was betrayed by a parishioner, somebody who he was close to, threw him under the bus, kicked him in the gut, used whatever whatever metaphor you want. He was betrayed, but I know, he said, I know that I don't have the option of just pulling back and pulling away. So how did I deal with the command to love? Quote, I clung to scripture. I hunger and thirsted for scripture. How do I, how do I, I clung and for several years, I prayed daily for grace to bear the cost of love. Here are some of the scriptures I prayed. Ephesians 4.2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Colossians 3.13, bear with each other and and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. 1 Peter 4.8, above all, my brothers and sisters, love each other deeply because love covers what? What does it cover? A multitude of sins. He said, I was hungry for these words. I craved these words. I knew that I was going to a task 
that I was weak and needy. There was no way that I could accomplish this task without these words. Psalm 1, the beginning of the Psalter, it says, what does it say? The, the, um, the mark of a godly man or woman is not that they pray every night, that they worship every day, that they worship every Sabbath, that they have fellowship with other Christians. The mark of a godly man or woman is that they meditate on God's word day and night. They treasure the word of God. I came across a very interesting statistic this week. There are about 1,800 verses in the Bible where Jesus is being quoted. 1,800. Of those 1,800, 180 of them are Jesus quoting Scripture. 10% of our, Savior's, of, our, of our Savior's words in the Bible are Scripture quotation and Scripture illusion. Do we think we need the Bible less than him? You come across a doctor or a businessman or some mover and shaker, and he says, I, I work 70 hours a week. I don't have time. You still have time to eat lunch. Or if you don't eat lunch, I bet you still eat dinner. You still have time to to eat regular food. Even if you skip a meal, you rarely miss an entire day of eating. I hear from moms. Moms say, well, I have little kids. I just have absolutely no time for the word. Well, how are you going to raise your kids if you're not full of the word? If God's word is not running through your veins, how are you going to love those little kids? (laughs) See, what Peter is saying here is when the word of God becomes as essential to you as eating... You won't miss it for days on end. Think anecdotally about your own life. When the word of God is is dwelling in your hearts and your minds, when the word of God is running through your veins, when the word of God is like lightning inside of you, I mean, aren't you, you might not be a professional at loving other people, but man, you're a whole lot better at it than otherwise. When the word of God is not dwelling in you, your, your flesh is so strong. It's so selfish. It's so... Self-centered. When the word of God is running through you, this, and this is the word of God that needs to be running through you. Second uh, John 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. But whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, so we also ought to love one another. Crave those words. Hunger for those words. It's those words which will keep us from the sins that are listed in verse 1. Turn back with me to First Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, he says, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, and all slander of every kind. Printed up a sheet in the narthex. It's written by Paul Tripp, and it's called The 23 Things That Love Is. If you want to pick it up as you go out today... Uh, I found it to be really helpful. I mean, when you ask the question, what is love? I I hate that question because there's just billions of different answers out there. What is love? You Google it and you'll get millions of different hits. And what is love just seems like such a philosophical kind of question. I I need practical what is love. And he gives what I think are 23 very practical expressions. Um, So let me highlight just a couple of these. 
Love is being willing to have your life complicated by the needs and struggles of others without impatience or irritability. And that's kind of what family is, isn't it? Family is always complicating and inconveniencing our lives. And we say, well, that's okay because they're my family. Next, love is being a good student of one another. Of being such a good student of another person, you can tell when their soul has bags underneath its eyes. Being such a good student of another person that you're looking out for their physical, emotional, and spiritual needs so that when they're burdened, you already know that. And you're already responding to that, either trying to come and lift that burden off of their shoulders or support and encourage them as they have to carry it themselves. Love is making a daily commitment to resist getting into conflict over minor offenses. I mean, I see this all the time. (laughs) The problems in the church are are usually stupid little stuff. Letting minor offenses get underneath your skin and it festers and turns into a sore. Love is a commitment not to point out and fight over the small stuff and enter into needless conflict. This life is too short for needless conflict. Love is in moments of disagreement, a commitment to speak kindly and gently and refuse the ad hominem, refuse to attack the other person's character or assault their intelligence. Love is unwilling to retaliate when you've been wronged, but love, this, I just love, this is a good one. Love seeks con- concrete, constructive actions to overcome evil with good. Love is looking for specific ways in a community to overcome evil with good. And finally, love is unwilling to flatter another person, unwilling to lie, unwilling to manipulate or deceive in any way in order to get them to do what you want them to do or give it to you the the way that, to give you something that's, that's your way. So as I said, 23 of those, you can take them home, put them uh, on the refrigerator if you want. Or the one omission that stood out to me from his list was the failure to talk about loving confrontation. And I, whenever we get into the love list stuff, I always, often find that loving confrontation is, is one of the categories that, that is overlooked. Scripture is never cowardly when it comes to confronting us with our sin. It stood out to me that he would say something like, get rid of malice, slander, bitterness, envy, jealousy. But, I mean, Peter understands that those are the sins that are in the church. Those are the sins that need to be rooted out of our hearts. How many times have we chickened out and not said, not told the truth to somebody, a hard but necessary truth, to somebody that we love. When was the last time that we actually confronted somebody about their malice or their deceit or their we don't do that. We don't do it because well, if I if I said that to her, it would hurt her so much. Baloney, it wouldn't hurt her so much. You don't say it because it would hurt you so much. Because you can't bear the discomfort of loving confrontation. But in reality, it's terribly selfish of us not to tell somebody The loving truth. As I said, that gets omitted in a lot of these lists. On the other hand, love knows how to dish out the loving truth 
in proper ways and proper proportions. So to give you this illustration, let's say you're washing the floor in your kitchen. Well, in order to do that, you've got to get down on your hands and knees. Down there, you see all the grime and dirt and Labrador, uh, Labrador hair in our kitchen. <laughs> you see it really clearly. And there's two ways that you could go about washing the floor in your kitchen. You could take the entire bucket of water and soap and just pour the whole thing out on the floor, right? That would wash it, and it would create an entirely larger mess if you just took the whole bucket and poured it on the floor. No, the way, the wise way to wash the floor is you, um, you bring it out in stages, You take the water, the soapy water, you wipe it down, you put it back in the bucket, you rinse it in the bucket, you give it out in stages. Confronting love, so necessary for us, so absent in most of our lives, confronting love has to be measured love. It takes me back to something Francis Schaeffer once said. He said, oh, this is a gem. He said, the double task of the Christian, the Christian has a double task. He has to practice both God's holiness and God's love. Not holiness without love, because holiness without love is harshness. Not love without holiness, because love without holiness is compromise. Anything that an individual Christian or church does that fails to show the simultaneous balance of the holiness of God and the love of God presents to the watching world a demonstration of God, of not the God who exists, but of a caricature of the God who exists. In all of our love, the balance, the holiness of God, the love of God, that that has to come out. Finally, look with me in verse 24, and we'll we'll end here. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. That is not a flattering statement about us. In the summertime, I love to lay a blanket out in my backyard and just there, right in the middle of the yard. And I lay there and I look at all the heads of the blades of grass because I don't know why I do it. I just, I love to see all, all of the grass. Just pick a single blade of grass and you drop it to the ground. And Peter says, that's us. Our lives are so terribly frail and fragile. It's going so fast. That blade of grass is you. We don't have enough time not to love each other. We don't have enough time. I don't want to go through my life having sin rob me of all joy and happiness. That's what sin does. That's the one thing that will rob you of happiness is, is your sin. I don't have enough time for my sin, and not to have my brothers and sisters confront me in love. I don't have enough time to, to be lonely. It's all passing so, so fast. So there's this guy, who, he decides, he's, I think he's been 40 years out of high school, and he decides to go back to his high school um, for a, a Friday night football game, back to the hometown high school, and... Very nostalgic kind of moment when you haven't been to your high school in 40 years. You see the bands and all the players and all the camaraderie and everybody's, yay, Dobson High School. The, the fighting Mustangs of Dobson High School is my, you know, he said, but in this reflective moment of 40 years removed from high school, he said, you know, um, it's, it's all very, it's kind of deceptive. 
All that youthful energy and camaraderie that's on the field, it might make you want to go back, but it's strangely deceptive because that same field that's, that's brimming with energy, Friday night lights with the band and the crowd, is going to be deserted just a few hours later. There's some guy who goes and flicks the lights off and chum, 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 chum. they all go out. And this crowded field is, is nothing but a vacant lot in just a few hours. He said, you, lo- you watch it and you see the, all the togetherness that's there on the football team or there in the band, but that togetherness is extremely ephemeral. And that's in part because almost everyone is unrelated to everyone else. And after practice or after the game, everybody goes to different homes. They all belong, belong to different families, and they're not really part of each other. You sign your yearbook, BFF, Best Friends Forever, and it's not true. A few teammates will remain lifelong friends, but the many will go on and get really preoccupied with work and life. Some will immediately have to move to different towns to find jobs. Um, Some may have to move out of state. And all the company and the camaraderie of Friday night football, it's gone. This was the most interesting one, he said. The scene on the football field repeats itself and yet the repetition is deceptive. For every year, you have another team that comes and plays, but roughly a third of the students who were on the field, who were on the field a year before are gone. They disappear. Like even the turnover in high school is in some sense a, a picture that there's an, entire, there's an entire year of people much advanced in age who have died and left. Roughly a third of the students that are on the field are new. The play remains the same, but the players keep changing. In a sense, the field is full of ghosts. Layers upon layers of previous seasons. All the teams that came and went are now forgotten by the younger generation. The present is superimposed on the past, and the present is fading into the past. Finally, none of the teachers I had when I was in high school are still there. Of course not. It's been 40 years. A number of them have died. Some are lingering in nursing homes. Lingering in nursing homes is a living death. The world we know is passing away. Even in the midst of life, the life of Friday nights, we are in death. Without the super glue of God's grace to keep us together, the acid of death dissolves every bond of devotion and affection. The grass withers, but the flowers and the flowers fall. But, but there's only one. There's only a couple things that endure forever, and that is the word of God. And if you look around the room, your family, like this family, this is the acid of death cannot dissolve your spiritual family. So, brothers and sisters, First John three eighteen, dear, dear children, let us not love merely with words or speech but let us love each other, one another, in actions and in truth. Amen.